Chapter 6 of An African Millionaire Episodes in the Life of the Illustrious Colonel Clay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirsten Weber. Chapter 6 of An African Millionaire Episodes in the Life of the Illustrious Colonel Clay by grant allen the episode of the german professor that winter in town my respected brother-in-law had little time on his hands to bother himself about trifles like colonel clay a thunderclap burst upon him he saw his chief interest in south africa threatened by a serious an unexpected and a crushing danger charles does a little in gold and a little in land but his principal operations have always lain in the direction of diamonds. Only once in my life, indeed, have I seen him pay the slightest attention to poetry, and that was when I happened one day to recite the lines, Full many a gem of purest ray serene, the dark, unfathomed caves of ocean bear. He rubbed his hands at once, and murmured enthusiastically, i never thought of that we might get up an atlantic exploration syndicate limited so attached is he to diamonds you may gather therefore what a shock it was to that gigantic brain to learn that science was rapidly reaching a point where his favourite gems might become all at once a mere drug in the market depreciation is the one bugbear that perpetually torments sir charles soul that winter he stood within measurable distance of so appalling a calamity it happened after this manner we were strolling along piccadilly towards charles's club one afternoon he is a prominent member of the croesus in pall mall when near burlington house whom should we happen to knock up against but sir adolphus cordery the famous mineralogist and leading spirit of the royal society he nodded to us pleasantly. "'Halloa, Vandrift!' he cried in his peculiarly loud and piercing voice. "'You're the very man I wanted to meet today. Good morning, Wentworth. Well, how about diamonds now, Sir Gorgias? You'll have to sing small. It's all up with you, Midases. Heard about this marvellous new discovery of Schleiermacher's? It's calculated to make you Diamond Kings squirm like an eel in a frying-pan. I could see Charles wriggle inside his clothes. He was most uncomfortable. That a man like Cordery should say such things, in so loud a voice, on no matter how little foundation, openly, in Piccadilly, was enough in itself to make a sensitive barometer such as Cloetador Golcondas go down a point or two. Hush, hush! charles said solemnly in that awed tone of voice which he always assumes when money is blasphemed against please don't talk quite so loud all london can hear you sir adolphus ran his arm through charles's most amicably there's nothing charles hates like having his arm taken come along with me to the athenium he went on in the same stentorian voice and i'll tell you all about it most interesting discovery makes diamonds cheap as dirt calculated to supersede south africa altogether charles allowed himself to be dragged along there was nothing else possible 
sir adolphus continued in a somewhat lower key induced upon him by charles's mute look of protest it was a disquieting story he told it with gleeful unction it seems that professor schleiermacher of jena the greatest living authority on the chemistry of gems he said had lately invented or claimed to have invented a system for artificially producing diamonds which had yielded most surprising and unexceptionable results charles lip curled slightly oh i know the sort of thing he said i've heard of it before very inferior stones quite small and worthless produced at immense cost and even then not worth looking at i'm an old bird you know cordery not to be caught with chaff tell me a better one sir adolphus produced a small cut gem from his pocket how's that for the first water he inquired passing it across with a broad smile to the sceptic made under my own eyes and quite inexpensively charles examined it close stopping short against the railings in st james's square to look at it with his pocket lens there was no denying the truth it was a capital small gem of the finest quality made under your own eyes he exclaimed still incredulous where my dear sir at Yena? the answer was a thunderbolt from a blue sky no here in london last night as ever was before myself and dr gray and about to be exhibited by the president himself at a meeting of fellows of the royal society charles drew a long breath this nonsense must be stopped he said firmly it must be nipped in the bud it won't do my dear friend we can't have such tampering with important interests how do you mean cordery asked astonished charles gazed at him steadily i could see by the furtive gleam in my brother-in-law's eye he was distinctly frightened where is the fellow he asked did he come himself or send over a deputy here in london sir adolphus replied he's staying at my house and he says he'll be glad to show his experiments to anybody scientifically interested in diamonds we propose to have a demonstration of the process to-night at lancaster gate will you drop in and see it would he drop in and see it drop in at such a function could he possibly stop away charles clutched the enemy's arms with a nervous grip look here cordery he said quivering this is a question affecting very important interests don't do anything rash don't do anything foolish remember that shares may rise or fall on this he said shares in a tone of profound respect that i can hardly even indicate it was the crucial word in the creed of his religion i should think it very probable sir adolphus replied with the callous indifference of the mere men of science to financial suffering sir charles was bland but peremptory now observe he said a grave responsibility rests on your shoulders the market depends upon you you must not ask in any number of outsiders to witness these experiments have a few mineralogists and experts if you like but also take care to invite representatives of the menaced interests i will come myself i am engaged to dine out but i can contract an indisposition and i should advise you to ask mosenheimer and say young phipson they would stand for the mines as you and the mineralogists would stand for science 
above all don't blab for heaven's sake let there be no premature gossip tell schleiermacher not to go gassing and boasting of his success all over london we are keeping the matter a profound secret at schleiermacher's own request cordery answered more seriously which is why charles said in his severest tone you bawled it out at the very top of your voice in piccadilly however before nightfall everything was arranged to charles's satisfaction and off we went to lancaster gate with a profound expectation that the german professor would do nothing worth seeing he was a remarkable-looking man once tall i should say from his long thin build but not bowed and bent with long devotion to study and leaning over a crucible his hair prematurely white hung down upon his forehead but his eye was keen and his mouth sagacious he shook hands cordially with the men of science whom he seemed to know of old whilst he bowed somewhat distantly to the south african interest then he began to talk in very german english helping out the sense now and again where his vocabulary failed him by waving his rather dirty and chemical-stained hands demonstratively about him his nails were a sight but his fingers i must say had the delicate shape of a man's accustomed to minute manipulation he plunged at once into the thick of the matter telling us briefly in his equally thick accent that he now proposed by his new process to make for us some good and satisfactory talents he brought out his apparatus and explained or as he said explain his novel method timons he said were nothing but pure crystalline carbon he knew how to crystallize it that was all the secret the men of science examined the pots and pans carefully then he put in a certain number of raw materials and went to work with ostentatious openness there were three distinct processes and he made two stones by each simultaneously the remarkable part of his methods he said was their rapidity and their cheapness in three-quarters of an hour and he smiled sardonically he could produce a diamond worth at current prices two hundred pounds sterling as you shall not see me perform he remarked with this simple apparatus the materials fizzed and fumed an unpleasant smell like burnt feathers pervaded the room the scientific men craned their necks in their eagerness and looked over one another vain vivian in particular was all attention after three-quarters of an hour the professor still smiling began to empty the apparatus he removed a large quantity of dust or powder which he succinctly described as by-products and then took between finger and thumb from the midst of each pan a small white pebble not water-worn apparently but slightly rough and wart-like on the surface from one pair of the pannikins he produced two such stones and held them up before us triumphantly these he said are genuine diamonds manufactured at a cost of fourteen shillings and sixpence a piece then he tried the second pair these he said still more gleefully are produced at a cost of eleven and ninepence finally he came to the third pair which he positively brandished before our astonished eyes and these he cried transported 
have cost me no more than three and eightpence. They were handed round for inspection. Rough and uncut as they stood, it was, of course, impossible to judge of their value. But one thing was certain. The men of science had been watching close at the first, and were sure Herr Schleiermacher had not put the stones in. They were keen at the withdrawal, and were equally sure he had taken them honestly out of the pannikins. "'I will now distribute them,' the professor remarked in a casual tone, as if diamonds were peas, looking round at the company, and he singled out my brother-in-law. "'One to Sir Charles,' he said, handing it, "'one to Mr. Mosenheimer, one to Mr. Fibson, as representing the diamond interest.' Then, of one each, to Sir Atolphus, to Dr. Gray, to Mr. Fenfiffian, as representing science. You will have them cut, and report upon them in two gores. We meet again at this place the day after tomorrow. Charles gazed at him reproachfully. The profoundest chords of his moral nature were stirred. Professor, he said in a voice of solemn warning, are you aware that, if you have succeeded, you have destroyed the value of thousands of pounds worth of precious property? The professor shrugged his shoulders. What is that to me? he inquired with a curious glance of contempt. I am not a financier. I am a man of science. I seek to know. I do not seek to make a fortune. Shocking, Charles exclaimed. Shocking. I never before in my life beheld so strange an instance of complete insensibility to the claims of others. We separated early. The men of science were coarsely jubilant. The diamond interest exhibited a corresponding depression. If this news were true, they foresaw a slump. Every eye grew dim. It was a terrible business. Charles walked homeward with the professor. He sounded him gently as to the sum required, should need arise, to purchase his secrecy. Already Sir Adolphus had bound us all down to temporary silence, as if that were necessary, but Charles wished to know how much Schleiermacher would take to suppress his discovery. The German was immovable. No, no, he replied with positive petulance. You do not understand. I do not buy and sell. This is a chemical fact. We must publish it for the sake of its theoretical value. I do not care for verse. I have no time to waste in making money. What an awful picture of a misspent life, Charles observed to me afterwards. And indeed the man seemed to care for nothing on earth but the abstract question, not whether he could make good diamonds or not, but whether he could or could not produce a crystalline form of pure carbon. On the appointed night, Charles went back to Lancaster Gate, and I could not fail to remark, with a strange air of complete and painful preoccupation. Never before in his life had I seen him so anxious. The diamonds were produced, with one surface of each slightly scored by the cutters, so as to show the water. Then a curious result disclosed itself. Strange to say, each of the three diamonds given to the three diamond kings turned out to be a most inferior and valueless stone, while each of the three entrusted to the care of the scientific investigators turned out to be a fine gem of the purest quality. I confess it was a sufficiently suspicious conjunction.
the three representatives of the diamond interest gazed at each other with inquiring side-glances then their eyes fell suddenly they avoided one another had each independently substituted a weak and inferior natural stone for professor schleiermacher's manufactured pebbles it almost seemed so for a moment i admit i was half inclined to suppose it but next second i changed my mind could a man of sir charles vandrift's integrity and high principle stoop for lucre's sake to so mean an expedient not to mention the fact that even if he did and if mosenheimer did likewise the stones submitted to the scientific men would have amply sufficed to establish the reality and success of the experiments still i must say charles looked guiltily across at mosenheimer and mosenheimer at phipson while three more uncomfortable or unhappy-faced men could hardly have been found at that precise minute in the city of westminster then sir adolphus spoke or rather he orated he said in his loud and grating voice we had that evening and on a previous evening been present at the conception and birth of an epoch in the history of science professor schleiermacher was one of those men of whom his native saxony might well be proud while as a briton he must say he regretted somewhat that this discovery like so many others should have been made in germany however professor schleiermacher was a specimen of that noble type of scientific men to whom gold was merely the rare metal a u and diamonds merely the element c in the scarcest of its manifold allotropic embodiments the professor did not seek to make money out of his discovery he rose above the sordid greed of capitalists content with the glory of having traced the element c to its crystalline origin he added no more than the approval of science however out of deference to the wishes of those financial gentlemen who were oddly concerned in maintaining the present price of c in its crystalline form in other words the diamond interest they had arranged that the secret should be strictly guarded and kept for the present not one of the few persons admitted to the experiments would publicly divulge the truth about them this secrecy would be maintained till he himself and a small committee of the royal society should have time to investigate and verify for themselves the professor's beautiful and ingenious processes an investigation and verification which the learned professor himself both desired and suggested schleiermacher nodded approval when that was done if the process stood the test further concealment would be absolutely futile the price of diamonds must fall at once below that of paste and any protest on the part of the financial world would of course be useless the laws of nature were superior to millionaires meanwhile in deference to the opinion of sir charles vandrift whose acquaintance with that fascinating side of the subject nobody could deny they had consented to send no notices to the press and to abstain from saying anything about this beautiful and simple process in public he dwelt with horrid gusto on that epithet beautiful and now in the name of british mineralogy he must congratulate professor schleiermacher our distinguished guest on his truly brilliant and crystalline contribution to our knowledge of brilliance and of crystalline science everybody applauded it was an awkward moment sir charles bit his lip mosenheyer looked glum young phipson dropped an expression which i will not transcribe i understand this work may circulate among families 
and after a solemn promise of death-like secrecy, the meeting separated. I noticed that my brother-in-law somewhat ostentatiously avoided Mosenheyer at the door, and that Phipson jumped quickly into his own carriage. Home, Charles cried gloomily to the coachman as we took our seats in the broom, and all the way to Mayfair he leaned back in his seat, with close-set lips never uttering a syllable. Before he retired to rest, however, in the privacy of the billiard-room, I ventured to ask him, "'Charles, will you unload Golcondos tomorrow?' Which, I need hardly explain, is the slang of the stock exchange for getting rid of undesirable securities. It struck me as probable that, in the event of the invention turning out a reality, Cloetidorp's A's might become unsaleable within the next few weeks or so. He eyed me sternly. "'Wentworth,' he said, "'you're a fool.' Except on occasions when he is very angry, my respected connection never calls me Wentworth. The familiar abbreviation C, derived from Seymour, is his usual mode of address to me in private. Is it likely I would unload and wreck the confidence of the public in the Cloetidorp Company at such a moment? As a director, as chairman, would it be just or right of me? I ask you, sir, could I reconcile it to my conscience? "'Charles,' I answered, "'you are right. Your conduct is noble. You will not save your own personal interests at the expense of those who have put their trust in you. Such probity is, alas, very rare in finance.' And I sighed involuntarily, for I had lost in liberators. At the same time, I thought to myself, "'I am not a director. No trust is reposed in me. I have to think first of dear Isabel and the baby.' Before the crash comes, I will sell out tomorrow the few shares I hold, through Charles's kindness, in the Cloetidorp Golcondas. With his marvellous business instinct, Charles seemed to divine my thought, for he turned round to me sharply. Look here, see, he remarked in an acidulous tone. Recollect you're my brother-in-law. You're also my secretary. The eyes of London will be upon us tomorrow. If you were to sell out, and operators got to know of it, they'd suspect there was something up, and the company would suffer for it. Of course, you can do what you like with your own property. I can't interfere with that. I do not dictate to you. But, as chairman of the Golcondas, I am bound to see that the interests of widows and orphans, whose all is invested with me, should not suffer at this crisis. His voice seemed to falter. "'Therefore, though I don't like to threaten,' he went on, "'I am bound to give you warning. "'If you sell out those shares of yours, openly or secretly, "'you are no longer my secretary. "'You receive, forthwith, six months' salary in lieu of notice, "'and you leave me instantly.' "'Very well, Charles,' I answered in a submissive voice. Though I debated with myself for a moment whether it would be best to stick to the ready money and quit the sinking ship, or to hold fast by my friend and back Charles's luck against the professor's science. After a short, sharp struggle within my own mind, I am proud to say, friendship and gratitude won. I felt sure that, whether diamonds went up or down, Charles Vandrift was the sort of man who would come to the top in the end, in spite of everything and I decided to stand by him. I slept little that night, however. My mind was a whirlwind. 
At breakfast, Charles also looked haggard and moody. He ordered the carriage early and drove straight into the city. There was a block in Cheapside. Charles, impatient and nervous, jumped out and walked. I walked beside him. Near Wood Street, a man we knew casually stopped us. I think I ought to mention to you, he said confidentially, that I have it on the very best authority that Schleiermacher of Vienna. Thank you, Charles said crustily. I know that tale, and there's not a word of truth in it. He brushed on in haste. A yard or two farther, a broker paused in front of us. Halloa, Sir Charles, he called out in a bantering tone. What's all this about diamonds? Where are Kleidedorps today? Is it Golconda or Queer Street? Charles drew himself up very stiff. I fail to understand you, he answered with dignity. Why, you were there yourself, the man cried, last night at Sir Adolphus's. Oh, yes, it's all over the place. Schleiermacher of Jena has succeeded in making the most perfect diamonds for sixpence apiece, as good as real, and South Africa's ancient history. In less than six weeks, Kimberley, they say, will be a howling desert. Every costermonger in Whitechapel will wear genuine coinors for buttons on his coat. Every girl in Bermondsey will sport a riviere like Lady Vandrift's to her favorite music hall. There's a slump in Golconda's. Sly, sly, I can see, but we know all about it. Charles moved on, disgusted. The man's manners were atrocious. Near the bank we ran up against a most respectable jobber. Ah, Sir Charles, he said, you here. Well, this is strange news, isn't it? For my part, I advise you not to take it too seriously. Your stock will go down, of course, like lead, this morning, but it'll rise tomorrow, mark my words, and fluctuate every hour till the discoveries proved or disproved for certain. There's a fine time coming for operators, I feel sure. Reports this way and that, rumors, 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 and nobody will know which way to believe till Sir Adolphus has tested it. We moved on towards the house. Black Care was seated on Sir Charles's shoulders. As we drew nearer and nearer, everybody was discussing the one fact of the moment. The seal of secrecy had proved more potent than publication on the housetops. Some people told us of the exciting news in confidential whispers. Some proclaimed it aloud in vulgar exultation. The general opinion was that Cloetsdorps were doomed, and that the sooner a man cleared out, the less was he likely to lose by it. Charles strode on like a general, but it was a Napoleon brazening out his retreat from Moscow. His mien was resolute. He disappeared at last into the precincts of an office, waving me back not to follow. After a long consultation, he came out and rejoined me. All day long the city rang with Golcondas, Golcondas. Everybody murmured, slump, slump in Golcondas. The brothers had more business to do than they could manage, though to be sure almost every one was a seller and no one a buyer. But Charles stood firm as a rock, and so did his brokers. I don't want to sell, he said doggedly. The whole thing is trumped up. It's a mere piece of jugglery. For my own part, I believe Professor Schleiermacher is deceived, or else is deceiving us. 
In another week the bubble will have burst, and prices will restore themselves. His brokers, Fingelmores, had only one answer to all inquiries. Sir Charles has every confidence in the stability of Golconda's, and doesn't wish to sell or to increase the panic. All the world said he was splendid, splendid. There he stationed himself on change like some granite stack against which the waves roll and break themselves in vain. He took no notice of the slump, but ostentatiously bought up a few shares here and there so as to restore public confidence. I would buy more, he said freely, and make my fortune, only, as I was one of those who happened to spend last night at Sir Adolphus's, people might think I had helped to spread the rumour and produce the slump in order to buy in at panic rates for my own advantage. A chairman, like Caesar's wife, should be above suspicion. So I shall only buy up just enough, now and again, to let people see I, at least, have no doubt as to the firm future of Cloetidors. He went home that night more harassed and ill than I have ever seen him. Next day was as bad. The slump continued with varying episodes. Now a rumour would surge up that Sir Adolphus had declared the whole affair a sham, and prices would steady a little. Now another would break out that the diamonds were actually being put upon the market in Berlin by the cartload, and timid old ladies would wire down to their brokers to realize offhand at whatever hazard. It was an awful day. I shall never forget it. The morning after, as if by miracle, things righted themselves of a sudden. While we were wondering what it meant, Charles received a telegram from Sir Adolphus Cordery. The man is a fraud. Not Schleiermacher at all. Just had a wire from Jena saying the professor knows nothing about him. Sorry, unintentionally, to have caused you trouble. Come round and see me. Sorry, unintentionally, to have caused you trouble. Charles was beside himself with anger. Sir Adolphus had upset the share market for forty-eight mortal hours, half-ruined a round dozen of wealthy operators, convulsed the city, upheaved the house, and now... He apologized for it, as one might apologize for being late ten minutes for dinner. Charles jumped into a hansom and rushed round to see him. How had he dared to introduce the impostor to solid men as Professor Schleiermacher? Sir Adolphus shrugged his shoulders. The fellow had come and introduced himself as the great Jena chemist. He had long white hair and a stoop in the shoulders. What reason had he for doubting his word? I reflected to myself that on much the same grounds Charles, in turn, had accepted the Honourable David Granton and Graf von Lebenstein. Besides, what object could the creature have for this extraordinary deception? Charles knew only too well. It was clear it was done to disturb the diamond market, and we realized it too late that the man who had done it was Colonel Clay in another of his manifold allotropic embodiments. Charles had had his wish. He had met his enemy once more in London. We could see the whole plot. Colonel Clay was polymorphic, like the element carbon. Doubtless, with his extraordinary sleight of hand, he had substituted real diamonds for the shapeless mass that came out of the apparatus in the interval between handing the pebbles round for inspection and distributing them piecemeal to the men of science, 
and representatives of the diamond interest. We all watched him closely, of course, when he opened the crucibles, but when once we had satisfied ourselves that something came out, our doubts were set at rest, and we forgot to watch whether he distributed those somethings or not to the recipients. Conjurers always depend upon such momentary distractions or lapses of attention. As usual, too, the professor had disappeared into space the minute his trick was once well performed. He vanished like smoke, as the Count and Seer had vanished before, and was never again heard of. Charles went home more angry than I had ever beheld him. I couldn't imagine why. He seemed as deeply hipped as if he had lost his thousands. I endeavoured to console him. After all, I said, though Golcondas have suffered a temporary loss, it's a comfort to think you should have stood so firm, and not only stemmed the tide, but also prevented yourself from losing anything at all of your own through panic. I'm sorry, of course, for the widows and orphans, but if Colonel Clay has rigged the market, at least it isn't you who lose by it this time. Charles withered me with a fierce scowl of undisguised contempt. Wentworth, he said once more, you are a fool. Then he relapsed into silence. But you declined to sell out, I said. He gazed at me fixedly. Is it likely, he asked at last, I would tell you if I meant to sell out? or that I'd sell out openly through Finglemore, my usual broker? Why, all the world would have known, and Golconda's would have been finished. As it is, I don't desire to tell an ass like you exactly how much I've lost, but I did sell out, and some unknown operator bought in at once, and closed for ready money, and has sold again this morning. And after all that has happened, it will be impossible to track him, he didn't wait for the account. He settled up instantly. He sold in the like manner. I know now what has been done and how cleverly it has all been disguised and covered. But the most I'm going to tell you today is just this. It's by far the biggest haul Colonel Clay has made out of me. He could retire on it if he liked. My one hope is it may satisfy him for life. But then no man has ever had enough of making money. "'You sold out?' I exclaimed. "'You, the chairman of the company? "'You deserted the ship? "'And how about your trust? "'How about the widows and orphans confided to you?' "'Charles rose and faced me. "'Seymour Wentworth,' he said in his most solemn voice, "'you have lived with me for years and had every advantage. "'You have seen high finance. "'Yet you ask me that question.' It's my belief you will never, never understand business. End of chapter 6